Hey guys, welcome to the World XP Podcast. This is episode number seven. I have uh, Chris, Tom, and Katie, and all these people are very accomplished in the field of immunology, so that's what we're here to talk about today. Um, do you guys want to go around the room and kind of introduce yourselves? I guess we can start with uh, we can start with Chris. Sure, great. Um, so my name is Chris Nerschel. I'm a, a PhD scientist currently working at Werewolf Therapeutics in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, I did my PhD down at Johns Hopkins with their School of Medicine uh, with Chuck Drake, doing immune oncology, um, Tregs, cancer vaccines, kind of a big checkpoints mishmash of stuff. Um, and then did a postdoc up here at the Brigham and Women's uh, Dermatology Group, and then went over to uh, one small biotech company, which got sold, and then we remade the company with the same people under a different name uh, so that we could get cooler merch under the name Werewolf Therapeutics. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Tom? Great. Uh, so I am Tom Nerschel. I, as you may be putting together, am Chris's brother. I am currently <laughs> doing my doctoral studies at Johns Hopkins, doing a co-mentorship with uh, Jelani Zarif and Drew Pardol. We work in a prostate cancer immunology lab focusing on uh, the suppressive nature of M2 macrophages uh, and trying to identify different therapeutically targetable uh, molecules for development. Perfect. Katie? Yeah, uh, I'm Katie Yost. Uh, I'm starting my fifth year in the cancer biology uh, PhD program at Stanford. Uh, I'm in Howard Chang's lab, and I've done kind of a mix of like cancer genomics and cancer immunology. Um, yeah, uh, and we're also in the Department of Dermatology, so there's some links there. Uh, <laughs> awesome, perfect. So I think to start, just so people have some sort of uh, background, I guess, of what we're talking about, I'd like to start with kind of what in immuno immunology and immun immunotherapy is. Um, how it works a little bit. Obviously, we don't have to go super in-depth with, with the science. I, I read some of your abstracts, Chris, that I had no idea what, what I was reading. Um, but yeah, just generally for the people listening, I guess, that, that don't know what it is or have no idea how it works, um, let's give some, some background uh, on, on what it is. So, Katie, you can start. Sure, yeah. So, um, oh gosh, I usually don't give, like, you know, to lay audience. So I'm used to talking about with a lot of jargon. So just let me know if I like get off on the rails too much. But, yeah, um, for sure. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, you know, immunology, it's the, it's the system in the body where, you know, there's this kind of these different cell types that help uh, defend the body against, you know, infection um, and things like that. And so, you know, there's kind of different arms. So the adaptive and the innate arms. Um, I've spent most of my time studying T cells, which are part of the adaptive immune response. So um, T cells, you know, they come in different flavors, but basically they can recognize specific proteins that are maybe a sign of an, an infection or specific to cancers, uh, the ones that I've been focusing on. So that's kind of a new application is kind of harnessing the ability of the immune system to recognize recognize, you know, when kind of things are awry, um, and then kind of harnessing that power to allow it to recognize and treat cancer. Um, I think, Tom, you're in a similar sort of situation, I think, you're, except you're focusing on how to get those T cells to target specific, uh, specific parts of, of the infections of the cancers, right? Yeah, yeah. So I agree entirely with what Katie said so far. I think that was a, a great overview analysis. Uh, I think the the only thing I'd add is just that the immune system is largely involved in keeping what we'll call the homeostatic balance in the, the body, right? So when you get an infection, you've tipped that balance, and their job is to eradicate the infection uh, and try and get you back to your normal baseline. Uh, so when you kind of take that mentality and extrapolate it to cancer, you can say that a cancer is an imbalance that needs to be corrected. So the immune system is capable of recognizing it 
uh, and eradicating it, but in the cases of, of clinical disease has failed to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my lab, I used to work in, in Chuck Drake's lab briefly as a, a technologist, uh, working with Chris a little bit about trying to understand the different suppressive mechanisms that are keeping these adaptive immune cells, these T cells, from recognizing and eradicating the tumor. Uh, my you current work is from somewhere. Yeah, no, I, I'm that guy. Uh, yeah, you can never get rid of me. Um, so my current work is focusing on actually the innate side. Uh, so the other other team for the immune system, which typically operates to prime an immune response uh, to, can, to, in this case, eradicate cancer, but uh, can actually have kind of a suppressive mechanism as well, which will actually dampen that, that T cell response. So we try to, to target those cells. That way we can prevent them from deactivating T cells. Uh, so kind of a negative, negative leading to a positive, if you will. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So I think we've heard the innate and the adaptive parts of, of the immune system. And so how do you guys get these? I'm going to go to you for this one, Chris. How do you guys get this research into a drug that gets, or like, how do you get the, the science into something that I can take and it will, it will help my T cells do what, what they're supposed to be doing? Yeah, perfect. So the, um, so these guys teed me up great. So thank you. <laughs> so, the, uh, so what basically happens in terms of the broad scale of research is that the academic labs will develop an idea um, going from the broadest sense, right? Going all the way from immunotherapy could be, be used to treat cancer down to sort of a specific protein or molecular pathway, right? So one that we all have experience in publications on is the PD-1 pathway, mm-hmm. um, but so basically what happens is the academic labs will identify the target molecules, right? So the, the proteins that are on the surface of a T cell that we could then try to manipulate with a drug. What happens is that industry partners will come in. They will typically license the idea from an academic lab. And what I do most of the time is then I take the biology behind the targets that, um, that these guys are producing and try to make a specific drug, which we can test in a variety of human samples. Um, and then we can take that drug to the FDA and say, okay, we have this idea, you know, we're going to target the PD-1 pathway. I've made this drug. Here is the safety profile of it. Here is the study profile of it. Is this safe enough to test in people? Perfect. So you mentioned the PD-1 pathway a couple of times. Do you want to elaborate on, on what that is? Sure. Um, so PD-1, is, so it stands for program death one. It is a protein that ex- that's expressed on a variety of, of cell types. Um, but what, what most people focus on is the T cell expression. So it's a, for, for people who haven't participated in this field, you can think of it like the brakes of a car. It's the part of the immune system that turns off the immune response. So within the immune response, the immune response is somewhat akin to a very specified nuclear bomb when it's used correctly, right? So it can lay waste to things at the individual protein level. And so one of the, the like normal examples people like to point out is that if you look at people who have diabetes, their beta islet cells will be deleted and the cell literally next to it will be fine, right? So that mm-hmm. the immune system is able to zoom in on one cell and just differentiate it from the next cell. But sometimes that goes totally awry. And so there are proteins that are built into the system that are safeguards that are supposed to give the immune system a heads up that, that it's going off the rails. Like, okay, I, I get that you're really excited about this target, maybe leave it alone. Um, so what happens in cancer is these proteins get co-opted. So the cancer starts to, to camouflage itself. 
itself using its using immune system's defenses against it. So it'll start to upregulate a number of proteins that say, hey, no, 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 I'm normal, leave me alone, uh, even when it's not. And so PD-1 is one of those proteins where when it binds to its ligand, PD-L1, uh, it dampens the T cell response. So the T cells, when they find their target, if it happens to be expressing PD-L1, it makes them start to hesitate as to whether or not this is an appropriate target. Um, and, and actually, so of Katie's work did a really good job of showing exactly where this, this drug is functioning. For a long time, people had this idea that the drug was functioning at the tumor. And so mm -hmm. there, are, there are T cells in the tumor. Um, but Katie, I'll let you take it from there. This is your, I've stumbled into your <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that was a great um, intro though. Yeah, so maybe I can talk a little bit about some recent stuff that I've been doing um, and then we can get back to other things. But um, yeah, so I recently was looking um, in skin cancer, so non-melanoma skin cancer specifically, and these are patients that are treated with um, anti-PD-1 blockade. Um, they respond pretty well. Um, and yeah, one question, so there's you know this cor clinical correlation. If you look at patients who respond um, to checkpoint blockade or anti-PD-1, um, there's a correlation with you know, kind of infiltration of T cells and other immune cells within the tumor and response. And it makes sense, right? If you have cells that are there, maybe you're more, you're, you're, they're already there, they're more likely to respond. And so kind of the thought was that those were the cells that actually kind of do the heavy lifting and that they just get reactivated when you use this treatment um, and they're kind of reinvigorated and able to go after um, the cancer cells and, and, you know, uh, and leading to tumor regression. Um, but what, part of what we did is to use this method, um, single cell method. So these allow you to look at kind of individual cells and specifically T cells are really cool because they have kind of um, the sequence that acts as like a name tag. So you can ask, you know, how are cells related to each other? Um, you know, if you look at the blood, if you look at the tumor, you can kind of ask, you know, which um, populations of cells are shared between those. And so what we did is to look, you know, prior to treatment and then afterwards and ask, you know, what are the cells that seem to be responding to this therapy? Are they the ones that were there before? You know, using the same tag, is it the ones that we saw in the tumor before treatment? Mm -hmm. And they expand and kind of um, are correlating with, you know, the tumor uh, regressing. And that's actually not what we saw. So what we saw was really surprising is that, you know, the cells that seem to expand the most after treatment was kind of this entirely new repertoire of T cells that came from somewhere else. We think the blood. Um, so that was something that I think, um, you know, wasn't really uh, appreciated before. And so that was really exciting. And so I'm doing some stuff now to kind of follow up on that and ask, you know, how other types of immunotherapy, do they also have lead to similar effects? Um, so I think, yeah, it was a cool study um, and it kind of a nice example too of, you know, being able to use clinical trials, not just to show efficacy of a drug, but to understand, you know, how the drug is working. Um, you can actually study these responses in patients, right? Ask why it works and when it doesn't work, why, why isn't it working? So you can learn more than just, you know, is the drug safe and is it effective, right? So you mentioned you were surprised by that finding. What were you guys expecting to find? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, if you kind of look at previous work that had been done, mostly based on this correlation just, between, you know, with increased T cells prior to the start of therapy with response, the expectation would be that if you, you know, are tracking these T cells over time, you would see some that were present before treatment and they would maybe change phenotype, they would get more activated, you know, more stimulated, or they would uh, they do this thing, you know, when they proliferate, they kind of you get a bigger pool of them. So that was one thing that we may have expected um, if that was kind of the, you know, the right assumption, right? Um, but what we okay. saw was totally different. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah, so I'll say that, that that was a great study. Sorry to jump in for a second, but a lot of the issue, right, is, is tracking. So how do you know that the T cell that's in the tumor was there to start and reactivated, or it's a mm -hmm. new one that infiltrated? We only get mm -hmm. one time point. So mm -hmm. their work was, was really nice showing that, that, 
it came from the peripheral blood. These weren't cells that were in the tumor. So it kind of solved this tracking issue of, well, where they, where did they start? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And okay. I think it, yeah, it fits with some other things that other people have done, you know, in people and also in other, you know, mouse models and things like that, that show that, you know, this T cell state that um, it kind of limits their activity, it seems to be a pretty fixed state. So it's hard to reverse it. So um, what we did kind of suggest and what other people are seeing now suggests that you, you know, you aren't able to rescue them really. You kind of need a new wave of cells to come in afterwards um, mm-hmm. to have an effective response. Yeah. Okay. I think just for a little, we should backtrack and just overview the, um, the immune system and kind of how it works, what, what T cells are. I know because you guys have explained them to me three times in the last week. Um, but for those listening uh, who have no idea what a T cell is, or let's kind of backtrack and just overview what the innate and the adaptive parts of it are, what, what the T cells are. And uh, Tom, I think, Tommy and Chris, you guys mentioned B cells before and, and some, and some different things. So uh, Chris, you want to kind of lay out the summary, I guess? Sure. Yeah, I can go through it. So the, so there's a couple different, kind of if you look at the broadest level there's a couple different aspects of the immune system so if we look at the the top level there's the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system and the biggest difference is the innate system is hard coded so if you're thinking of it from a you know from an an example of programming right you can program a computer to look for specific inputs right mm-hmm. that would be like if you do like a drop down menu right so you can, you know, if you're on any given website and there's a drop-down menu, say you're, you're putting in your location, right? So you put your address, then you put your street, and then it has a drop-down menu for state, right? The program has a hard-coded set of 50 responses that it can accept, you know, Alabama, Mississippi, Massachusetts, Boston, or not Boston, but any of the states, right? <laughs> we consider ourselves a state, thank you. <laughs> But so, so those are hard coded, right? It, the system doesn't know how to interact with anything that is not one of those 50 answers. So the immune system has a series of, of programs like that as well. So it knows to look for certain things like things that tend to find themselves in the extracellular wall of bacteria, right? Lipopolysaccharide or different variations on RNA and DNA, right? So that you'll look for um, cyclic DNA, which is not something we make and expose a whole lot of, or different types of RNA molecules that tend to be in pathogens, not in humans. So there's a couple of, there's some very specific inputs that the immune system knows. Hey, if I see one of these 50 answers, something's up. But it doesn't know how to process something that's not one of those 50 answers, right? Mm-hmm. So the, you know, in evolution, there's a little bit of an arms race going on with the immune system and everything else that's out there. So, you know, bacteria doesn't just sit there and say, well, you got me, you're like, you've got my number. Um, you know, I always use lipopolysaccharide. So I guess you win, right? It's over. We're mm-hmm. just going to go home. Um, so that instead what it, they'll start to do is the, the pathogens will start to use a number of mechanisms to hide these things. And so then you get this evolutionary back and forth where, you know, we're looking for signal A and so they hide signal A. And then we learn to look for signal B and then they hide signal B. And so that's where the adaptive immune system comes in. So the adaptive immune system learns on the fly what it's looking for. So it's slower. The innate immune system knows, look, I'm looking for the 50 answers. It's encoded in the DNA. It's very quick. It knows exactly what it's looking for. The Mm -hmm. adaptive immune system has to watch the system develop and watch the infection Mm -hmm. 
and say, oh, hey, look, there's a target. There's a target. And so then it learns and develops a response to something in particular. And so that comes with positives and negatives, right? Like I said, the innate immune system's fast. It's quick. It's very powerful. Um, it knows if it, if it gets triggered, it should probably wipe out whatever that is. Um, but if something doesn't fall into those 50 answers, it's basically inert. It can't find anything that falls outside of the box. Mm. The adaptive immune system is slower. It takes a while. It has to learn what you've been infected with and learn what it can target and how to respond. Um, but it's super versatile. So in theory, the immune, well, so in theory, your immune system can respond to things that don't exist today. So if you were to, <clears throat> you know, generate some mystery molecule tomorrow and inject it, it's never existed on the planet except for in this lab one time and you inject it into a passerby they'll probably respond to it and generate a specific immune response to it because their adaptive immune response can adapt to the new environment mm, okay so that's the advantage of the adaptive system mm -hmm. cool. yeah and just to follow up, so like one, you know, of the challenges with using, you know, immunotherapy to treat cancer is that, you know, there's a lot of safeguards that uh, Chris, you mentioned already. And a lot of those are to yeah, protect, you know, the immune system from recognizing your own cells. And the issue with cancer is that, you know, cancer arose from your own cells that acquired some set of mutations and it may be a lot and maybe not that many. And the, so the immune system has to be able to recognize those very small differences, right? Like the majority of things are going to be the same as other cells in your body. So there's kind of a limited shots on goal. And so, you know, the kind of the goal of different types of immunotherapy are, you know, how can we, um, you know, get at those few shots that we have, right? Mm, and so there's yeah. lots of, lots of things that influence that. Um, but yeah, we can get into that. And that's what you're working on, right, Tom? The specific parts of what they should recognize? Sort of. For all, so we're, for all three of you, really, I guess. Yeah, I think that's sort of everyone's end goal. At the end of the day, we do it a bunch of different ways, but we're all trying to enhance that shots on goal, like you said. Our, our objective is to allow the immune system to find that very specific molecule and go to town. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the important things to note that I, I think both Katie and, and Chris touched on and did a good job is uh, the versatility and the flexibility of the adaptive immune system targeting system. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, right, the objective of your immune system is to recognize things it can't predict, right, and be able to deal with it when it happens in real time. So if you want to have a, a T cell, for instance, that's capable of responding to a particular pathogen, there are kind of two basic ways you could go about encoding that. One, you could have a very specific segment of DNA that codes for every possible pathogen in the universe. Uh, your DNA would be astronomically large. It's unreasonable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, people have done the math and they've shown that the human genome is about 3 billion base pairs. And if you put every single one of those into just immune cells, you still wouldn't get the flexibility we have now. So yeah. teaching you by, by having everything base encoded is unreasonable. So what we actually do is you have a controlled system of randomness is how I'll, I'll describe it. And in short, in these T cells and in B cells, your genome actually selectively rearranges and changes. It is a controlled mutation, but it is a mutation. Uh, and the resulting feature is that you have T cells that are able to respond to random things. So if you stop there, you'd actually have a problem, right? Because you'd have a bunch of T cells that could be specific for you, right? Your mm -hmm. proteins. So there's actually a training ground for uh, the T cells called the thymus. And the short version is immature T cells go in they rearrange to be able to be specific for a random thing. And then your body exposes that T cell to a bunch of what I'll call healthy, normal host proteins. 
And if the T cell reacts, it's killed. If it doesn't react, it's allowed into the periphery because it essentially is able to recognize something that isn't you, right? But it is a mm -hmm. random process. We don't know what it is specific for. We just know it's not you. And mm -hmm. then it goes out into the periphery. And if it encounters something that it is capable of engaging with, it will attack it. Mm -hmm. So this becomes kind of an interesting feature, right? Because you think about bacteria and viruses and uh, parasites and things like that. And they are very much not you, right? Pretty much anything they have is considered foreign. So right. there's a good chance that one of your T cells will recognize it as not you and kill. The issue comes with cancer is it sort of is you, right? Mm -hmm. It's you, but it's not mm -hmm. you. So it kind of walks this interesting new line of, as Jenna was saying, a bunch of the molecules will be you. So your T cells that would have theoretically recognized that molecule have been erased. Mm -hmm. So the question is, do you have some T cells that are capable of, of recognizing a mutated version of you? And that's what all of us are, are in some capacity working on is these T cells do exist. So how do we support them? Because there's not usually a lot of them uh, and they are attacking a version of you. So there's a lot of defense mechanisms in place to prevent that. So how do we selectively overwhelm those defense mechanisms and mm -hmm. allow the T cell that is selective for a mutated version of your protein uh, to do its job and kill the cancer without going off target and, and causing a bunch of autoimmunity issues? Yep. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, and like to follow up on that. So I think, you know, relatively recently in terms of, you know, science, like this, it was thought that the immune system couldn't be used to target cancer because of that, right? So, you know, these like checkpoint inhibitors were kind of the first example of, uh, you know, that, that this could work, right? And actually works surprisingly well in a lot of patients. Um, and so I think that, you know, now there's a ton of interest, right, to try to find ways to make it better um, or, you know, alternative, um, you know, pathways to get there. So I think is, is one of those ways to, Tom, you mentioned turning off the inhibitors, I guess, that would al not allow the T cells to do their job. Is that what the PD-1 does? It is. Yep. So there's okay. a couple of different versions. So we call them checkpoint receptors, at least I think there's a couple of different versions of this name, but that's one of the common ones. And the idea is, is as everyone's been talking about so far, that let's take it through a normal infection, right? Let's say you get a cut in your arm, a bacteria gets in and it's dangerous. Uh, that bacteria will initially be recognized by your innate immune system, which will do its best to handle it. It will try and phagocytose it. It will try and destroy it. If it can, that's where it ends. If it can't, it will try and hold the line. Uh, and one thing that we didn't talk about earlier is that the innate and the adaptive immune systems, while separate, are linked. Uh, mm -hmm. So take, for instance, that the innate system has something called a macrophage. A macrophage will try and phagocytose bacteria and destroy them. But at the same time, some of them will head to your lymph nodes and will start to activate the adaptive immune system, essentially holding the line while we call for specific reinforcements, mm -hmm. right? We really want your T cells to get in there. We're going to hold the line, but we need you to get here as soon as you can. Um, so it's kind of this, this interesting system where everything plays uh, nicely with each other. Um, yeah, and I mean, if we get into you know, vaccines and um, COVID-19 later, so I think one other important feature of the adaptive immune system is that it has a memory, right? So if you do have a T cell response against a pathogen or against cancer, um, so these cells will proliferate, you'll make a bunch of them, you know, to eradicate their target. Um, but then after the infection is cleared, um, you don't really need all of them around anymore, but your body wants to remember that pathogen in case it ever sees it again. Um, so there's a specific type of T cell called memory T cells, and these, you know, aren't present 
wasn't in great numbers, but they're constantly kind of circulating and uh, like on patrol for in case that pathogen ever comes back. Um, so that's part of, um, you know, along with B cells, which we can maybe get into a little bit more, um, that allows you to have a memory of an infection. Um, and so if you, you know, have, you know, some type of cold or something, or then you will have resistance to it going forward because now your immune system has been trained already, right? It doesn't have to go through all these steps of the maturation process and um, you know, prolifer proliferating. It's kind of armed and ready to go. I think I realize I uh, I don't think I fully answered your question, but but Katie kind of jumped in and saved me. <laughs> no, yeah, but after when after you have this immune reaction, right, you want to generate your memory cells, and, and as she said, you don't really need all of those cells anymore. So this is where something like PD one would naturally come up and allow you to start shutting down that immune system to generate those memory cells. So you don't have an active immune response forever, just until the pathogen is cleared. Then you make your memory mm -hmm. cells. So yeah, that's where PD one kind of classically comes in. Right, because in the after case the of after the cancer is gone, you wouldn't want your T cells to continue attacking your own cells. So once the drug is stopped, they would stop doing that. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's sort okay. of where, where Chris was talking about earlier is we're, we're trying to release the brakes on the immune system. So they're being inappropriately stopped early. So mm -hmm. we're going to temporarily intervene, prevent the cancer from turning off the immune system using this PD-1, PD-L1 axis. And then once the cancer is eradicated, we'll take you off the drug, your immune system will shut down, it'll make these memory cells, and it'll just sort of patrol and survey for the cancer should it ever return. That's the ideal okay. uh, uh, ending for us. That makes sense. So I think, Katie, you bring up the, the interesting point of the vaccines and the memory cells and also the B cells. So the B cells, um, well, all three of you, are they the ones that create the antibodies? Is that, is that accurate? So when, you are, when someone is given a vaccine, is the is the ideal scenario to get the memory T cells or to have the B cells create the antibodies or does it depend on the vaccine and the pathogen? Whoever wants to jump in, can go. Someone else wants it. Chris, jump in. Sure. So, I mean, um, the answer is is kind of a yes and. So mm -hmm. it's um, so there's a couple different mechanisms by which you can get protection. So one of the mechanisms that the B cells contribute to are, is called neutralizing immunity. Mm -hmm. And so that's when you have just a ton of antibodies in your blood, or you're able to ramp up production of antibodies very quickly, um, such that basically any time, so the way a virus works, right, is that it doesn't have any, or doesn't have a lot of machinery itself. And what it does is it infects your cells, hijacks the factories in your cells to make more of itself. And then it pops out of those cells and go, and those go and infect more cells. So neutralizing antibodies work in a, by making it so that there are so many antibodies in your system that the moment the virus pops out, it gets bound up and basically netted up in antibodies so that it can't go on to infect other cells. Um, so consider that just a, you know, you're, you're casting a net that would take out any antibody or any virus that pops its head up. Um, you could also, another part of the immunity, um, that's where a lot of it, let me take a step back. That's where a lot of vaccines like to focus their attention because mm -hmm. that kind of response is going to protect you the most efficiently because when you get infected, if you have a neutralizing net already in place, you'll never actually develop an infection, right? Mm -hmm. At some point at the beginning of every sickness, you interacted with one dose of the virus or the bacteria. And if you were able to cut it off at the pass and prevent that virus or bacteria from spreading, you could get sick and you probably do get sick you know, thousands and thousands of times a day. And mm -hmm. you never even notice because it never gets out of the gate. Um, so that's what a neutralizing immune res antibody response would do. And those antibodies are produced by B cells. Now the B cells don't produce them in a vacuum. And so they need some T cell help to get to the most efficient format of an mm -hmm. antibody. 
Um, and then there's also the issue of viruses that stay in other cells. So the antibodies can only attack things that bother to pop out of your cells. They can't actually get into your own cells. Um, so they're circulating kind of around the cells waiting for the virus or the bacteria to come out. Mm -hmm. um, CD8 T cells basically go through and they kind of are doing an interrogation. So they're saying like, hey, do you have anything going on in there? Um, and if, they, if the answer is yes, they burn the cell's house down. Like that's the, they just immediately kill that cell. Um, and so that's the other part of the vaccine is you have to both attack it when it's inside your own host cells and when it has exposed itself to try and travel to another cell. Okay, that makes sense. So why, so I think you mentioned before when we were talking the other day that the antibodies are not cells themselves, right? They're proteins. Mm -hmm. Is that why they can't get into the other, like your own cells? Or is there another reason for that? Yeah, yeah, so that's, yeah go ahead, Tom. Let's no, say the only way to get into a cell would be either to pass through the membrane naturally, which they can't do, or to be brought in through some sort of receptor interaction, which they don't have. Uh, so they just okay. can't pass through naturally. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned CD4 T cells, Chris. Um, mm -hmm. Again, when we talked the other day, you mentioned CD8 as well. I, mm -hmm. I'm assuming at some point uh, CD8 will probably pop up in this conversation. So do you want to do? <laughs> so do you want to do a quick little uh, rundown sure. of, of what those are? Sure, definitely. Yeah. Sorry, I we you gave you pitched me the what are the cells question, and then I just yeah. totally walked past it. Yeah. Um, so the players that we've touched on so far are the B cells, right, which make the antibodies. They have different forms. So there's, you know, pre-B cells and plasma cells and all of these different formats of them. But the take-home message is that they make antibodies that are then spread throughout your body. Um, the T cells are responsible for killing infected cells or tumor cells, as we'll probably come back to. And they come in two broad flavors, but realistically, we should just talk about them as three flavors. Mm -hmm. So there's the CD8 T cell which is responsible, it's the effector arm of the response. So the CD8 T cell is responsible for killing target cells. Um, so if they come in, like I said, so they're going, they're interrogating cells as they go down the line. If they find a cell that's suspect, it's the CD8 T cell that is going to actually kill that cell. Um, the other flavor of T, of T cells are the CD4 T cells, and they come in two subcategories. So CD4s, are not specifically for, for the most part, um, for, for being on average. Um, in the literature, they're not reported to kill cells. What they are reported to do is to modify the environment. And so they make a bunch of things called cytokines, which are basically warning signals. Consider it like a warning flare, right? They send up warning flares that let everybody know there's something going on here. And so then more immune cells come and they start to look, you know, what's going on here? Why are there fireworks over here? They start to come in and investigate. Um, and they also will kind of modify the environment in terms of changing different adhesion molecules on the cells that are around the infection. So they start to warn. So imagine you've got one cell in the center that's infected mm -hmm. and a CD4 cell sees it, right? Or the CD4 cell, th there's another cell in the mix here, but the CD4 cell recognizes that there's something going on at the site. It starts to send up signals. The surrounding cells that are not infected, so the ones in the ring surrounding the infected cell will start to kind of lock their doors and say like, oh, there's something going on over there. Let me just, you know, crank things down. I'm going to lower the shades, make sure nobody comes over here. Mm -hmm. um, and then also they'll start to attract other, you know, macrophages, neutrophils, which are other kind of innate cells. 
CD8s, they'll start to attract other immune cells. The other flavor of the CD4 T cell is the regulatory T cell, which is responsible for turning. It's a T cell that's, so it comes to an infection site and goes, okay, everybody relax, everything's fine. Um, and they have their own, there's, an old, there's, there's a whole discussion about regulatory T cells in cancer and how they tend to be there a lot. There's a lot more of them than should be there in a lot of patient samples and in mouse models. Um, okay. But so those are kind of the three flavors of T cell. And then there's a whole other list of, of innate cells that are involved with kind of similar functions. So natural killer cells are like CD8s, they kill targets, mm -hmm. but they're part of the innate response. So they need the hard coded receptor to activate their activity. Um, neutrophils are kind of similar, but they also have some CD4-like responses where they'll, they'll reduce cytokines, let people know what's going on. Um, like Tom mentioned, macrophages are kind of a hybrid cell type. So they are responsible for activating some part of the activation of the T cell side. They also are um, responsible for a lot of really cool GIFs on the internet. So if you ever <laughs> see like a video of a cell chasing a bacteria around, uh -huh. that's a macrophage. Yeah. Um, oh, okay, that's so, good to know. Now the people will know. Yeah, you should check them out. It's really cool. So basically they'll chase it around and then they'll eat it, right? So when yeah. Tom said phagocytose, that means eat it. They'll literally just snap it up. Uh, so those are cool. Um, and then there's, a, there's kind of a linker cell called the dendritic cell, which also comes in a bunch of different flavors. But really what the dendritic cell is doing is it's mediating the training of T cells. So it has a bunch of innate receptors and then it has a bunch of, it's kind of the bridge between the two systems where it recognizes that there's something going on and that I need to go get the T cells. So that's- okay. I mean, you so, guys can jump in if I missed anybody, but I think that's the big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I so, think the takeaway, right, is that the, the immune system isn't messing around, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. overkill is underrated, might as well be its motto, right? Mm -hmm. Every single thing has some sort of redundant feature. As Chris said, you know, there are CD8 T cells and there are NK cells, and they both do similar things because sometimes something gets away from one and the other comes in and clears it up. There is mm -hmm. always a redundant layer. There is just a ton of crosstalk. Uh, when Chris said, you know, they don't happen in a vacuum, that is true for the whole system. Right. You, know, you okay. lose a cell type and there is supposed to be something else there to try and back it up. Because if it fails, you, the host, die. And that's not evolutionarily good, right? Yeah. yeah. There, wouldn't, there wouldn't be a lot of us left if we all died. <laughs> right. It, it wouldn't be a very good system if it didn't work. Right. So I want to jump back to the vaccine for a second. I know that um, everybody's been hearing about COVID antibodies. And I know, Katie, you've been doing some research into, into COVID in general. I don't remember some of the specifics, but um, how would the vaccine create those, uh, that antibody response that we need? Mm -hmm. And how does, what is your research kind of touching on and how is that all flowing together? Yeah. So I think just to take a little bit of a step back, so just vaccines in general, kind of the goal is to do the training of the immune system, right? To, to get these, to these cells that can recognize it and, you know, persist and produce antibodies without actually having to go through the infection itself, right? So to prevent you from getting sick, um, but still get all the training that the immune system needs. So the way this is normally done is you take, you know, the bits of the virus um, that you think are going to generate an immune response. And so it's not the virus itself, right? So you don't get the full infection, but you get the bits that the immune system needs to train it. Um, so that's kind of the goal of most viruses. And so, you know, 
the reason they take a long time to develop and, uh, you know, is that you need to know which bits are the important part. And then for things like the flu, the, you know, there's this battle, right? So the flu is constantly changing every year. And so the vaccine that worked last year, now the, you know, the flu virus has mutated that part, right? So now those cells can no longer recognize it and the vaccine won't work. Mm -hmm. um, so the part of, um, so that's, you know, in general. And so there's a couple of vaccines that are being developed for COVID. So hopefully we'll get one that uh, produces a good response. Um, some things that I've been doing um, a little bit of is kind of tracking the, uh, the immune response that's happening in patients um, without a vaccine. So patients that have gone through um, SARS-CoV-2 infection do, and have generated um, antibodies, what do those antibodies look like? Um, and what do the T cell, what's the T cell memory also look like? Um, so kind of, you know, have they generated kind of both parts of this? Do you need both the T and the B cell side? Is one going to be more effective than the other? Um, and specifically, you know, what are these name tags that we talked about of these cells that um, have recognized that um, came from the infection, what do they look like? What do the antibody sequences look like that are capable of neutralizing the virus? And um, that will be important, you know, for telling if vaccines are working, do, do, can we generate those same types of responses in people after they receive the vaccine? So what, what have you found so far, if, if a lot or anything, really? It's kind of in the early days, so um, I'll maybe keep you posted. <laughs> um, <but laughs> Sounds good. Um, yeah. So you mentioned... Um, the vaccine is not the full the full virus, right? You need the mm -hmm. important parts. So how how would you um, or how do the pharmaceutical companies or whoever may is making the vaccine how do they take the virus itself and get it down to those little important bits uh, so it doesn't actually infect you and so your immune system gets the the, the training I guess that it actually needs. How how does that work? I'll let one of you two take that, actually. Don't know what to talk about that part. So there's just a whole host of ways is the short yeah. answer. Um, the reason that, that vaccines traditionally, I'll take a small tangent, but traditionally take years to develop is because it can be a bit costly. So they tend to run through one approach. Does it work? Doesn't it work? If no, try a new approach, mm -hmm. right? And you just rinse and repeat until you find one of the approaches that does what you want it to do. The reason okay. that vaccine development has been a lot quicker on this one is because a bunch of different companies are trying a bunch of different ideas in parallel, right? Mm, so the reason to do okay. it in series is because if something fails, you can try one more idea and that'll kind of keep your minimum trials, right? Maybe the third idea was the right one. I only tried two failures before. Alternatively, I can try 10 ideas right now, invest fully in all 10 and nine of them might bomb or maybe all 10 bomb, right? Mm -hmm. So right now we're having much faster development because governments and organizations are under high pressure to develop a successful vaccine now, independent of cost and energy, right? Mm -hmm. So traditionally, the cost and energy part is, is sort of what slows down the R&D, um, as well as just basic research, as Katie said, finding the particular molecule that matters. So maybe, broadly speaking, antibodies react to proteins. That's kind of a, a key piece here. So okay. at the end of the day, you want to generate an immune response to a key protein on whatever your target pathogen is, um, if that makes sense. Yeah. So maybe we talk specifically about one of the, the clinical trials going on right now for one of the COVID-19 vaccines. I want to say it's, uh, yeah, sure. it's mRNA1273 or something like that. Uh, yeah, it's in a phase. Very specific. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was looking this up the other day. Yeah. Be, one of those numbers might be wrong, but it's pretty close. Um, it's made by a company called Moderna, and, and they're in a phase three clinical trial right now. So this particular vaccine is called an mRNA vaccine, which is you, you heard in the name. Mm -hmm. So 
to maybe take a half step back to understand an mRNA vaccine, we should probably just run through DNA mRNA protein go, first. Go, go for it. <laughs> so, so DNA is in every cell and it makes up the specific coding of you, right? In a nutshell. Uh, so think of it as if you're on a construction site, this is the master blueprint. This is it. This is everything you can possibly do in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Uh, RNA is when a specific page out of that blueprint is being copied a whole bunch and distributed to the different teams to do something, right? They're then going to read that copied page and they're going to put together a product, right? So for, to go back, it's DNA then becomes RNA, which is the specific copied piece. And then RNA gets translated into protein, which is the final product, Okay. right? So this is, this is how the traditional, what we call the golden rule, DNA to mm-hmm. RNA, RNA to protein. And protein is what you're trying to elicit immune reaction typically to. So in this case, what this company has done is they've uh, looked at the genome of the COVID-19 virus. We've, through other work and other assays, people have determined that it's what's called the spike protein is the most important protein we can find right now. And that this protein is what facilitates the virus getting into your cells where it can replicate and take over and and cause the disease symptoms. Uh, So what they've done is they found the particular mRNA code that codes for that spike protein. They wrapped it up in essentially a lipid carrier and they're injecting it into people. And that the reason they're doing this is that, as we talked about earlier, you have macrophages, you have dendritic cells, you have B cells, and these fall under a class of cells called antigen-presenting cells. Uh, which are very literal in their name. They will take antigen and they will present it to the adaptive immune system, which will activate to it and form a response to it. So the hope is that we inject these mRNA-containing capsules into you. The antigen-presenting cells will take it up. It is an mRNA, so they will then translate whatever it codes for, which in this case is the uh, uh, SARS-CoVID-19 spike protein, they will make this protein in isolation. It is just this protein. It's not the virus. It is a single mm-hmm. part of the virus. Right. And it will present that piece of the virus to the T cells who will then activate and form this immune reaction. They will activate B cells. You will get your antibody production uh, and you will form memory cells. Then later in life, if you go out into the wild and the actual virus gets into you, you have antibodies specific already for this spike protein. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that in this vaccine, we're actually not injecting you with a protein. We're injecting you with an mRNA transcript, which once it's in an antigen-presenting cell, will be endogenously, but the host cell itself will use its own machinery to build this protein, and then mm-hmm. will take that protein and display it to T cells in a way that says, hey, you should react to this. Mm-hmm. That's the idea. That makes at least sense. behind this particular vaccine. So mm-hmm. we've talked about viruses mutating or... and Come, like coming up with different ways to infect you is is coming up with a new protein a relatively common way for for a virus to mutate or is is this going to be a really short term type vaccine or what are we kind of looking at with with this great question um so i guess <laughs> the short answer is we'll tell you in five years okay. <laughs> fair enough uh, the, the longer answer, answer is what you should know about DNA is that it's extraordinarily stable, i.e. Okay. if a mutation gets introduced, it usually gets removed and fixed. Not always, mm-hmm. but usually. RNA is much less stable. And what I mean by that is if it gains a mutation, odds are it's not going to correct that mutation. That just becomes part of that virus going forward. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it in, in kind of a one of three possible outcomes, the virus picks up a mutation and either one, it's helpful in that the virus is now a better virus, two, it doesn't make any difference in the world. The virus is exactly the same. It has a mutation, but it has no functional difference. Or three, it is detrimental. 
right? Mm. If it's detrimental, that virus will not proliferate. It won't, it won't be as good. It'll get outcompeted by its counterparts. If it's right. better, the virus will now be better and you'll see that strain start to take off. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we mm-hmm. talked about the incredible specificity of your adaptive immune system, right? They can, they right. can recognize down to a particular mutation uh, within a protein. It's beautiful. The plus side to that is that you get a lot of highly specific responses. So like Chris was saying earlier, you can go up to a cell, kill it, and the neighboring cell is fine. Mm-hmm. The detriment to this is that you actually, you being the virus, the virus doesn't actually have to completely change a protein. A single small mutation that causes a little bit of difference can cause it to escape that highly specific immune reaction, right? Mm-hmm. So imagine that, that you are a CD8 T cell. You're walking around and we've taught you that you're looking for a red hat, a guy wearing a red hat. Mm-hmm. You're walking around, you find a guy with a red hat, you tackle him. Great. What <laughs> happens when you come across a guy who's got a, a red hat that's been photo bleached and is a little lighter shade of red? Well, maybe you, you don't tackle don't him. Tackle it's not really him? the right color, right? <laughs> yeah. So that one gets to keep walking. Mm-hmm. He didn't have to take his hat off. He didn't have to change anything. It's just a little different color. Yeah. So viruses can do that, where they can actually just have a mutation that modifies a protein just slightly, and your adaptive immunity is gone. And this is what mm-hmm. happens with the flu every year. So we make a mm-hmm. vaccine, you get antibodies to a particular protein, and then next year it's a slightly different version of the same protein, but your adaptive immune response can no longer recognize it. And now mm-hmm. we've got to start over with a new vaccine. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So sometimes they ditch the, the protein entirely. Sometimes they just change it a little bit. Yeah. Wow, you know, sounds there, like there's a penalty the to being people, so specific. Yeah, it sounds like the vaccine people have a hard job for the flu. Come out with a new one every year. Huh. Um, well, there's yeah. sort of there's a funny thing to that story too, which I think um, a lot of people miss in sort of the pharmaceutical side of things. Okay. So the flu is a good example. You have to decide which flu to make mm-hmm. in like February, <laughs> right, for next year because you have to make it, right, and that takes right. a while to make hundreds of millions of doses. So you have to predict ahead of time which drug you need um, because you can't make it that quickly. And so there's a lot of that kind of going on in industry of going, well, I mean, would I like more time to test something? Sure, but the deadline's tomorrow. So pick one. And like, and then off to the races you go, right? And that's why sometimes uh-huh. the flu vaccine is more effective than others is that mm-hmm. you you pick a direction and then the, you know, the, the flu, you know, takes a, a hard jank left and that's it, right? And then you, you missed it. Um, so there's a, there's a logistical side to it that mm-hmm. tacks onto the science side of, well, how do I make, you know, a couple hundred million doses and distribute them mm-hmm. worldwide? And how long does that take? Um, and then all the regulatory stuff that goes with that, right? You have to check it. You know, you, there's a whole bunch of regulatory compliance stuff that comes with putting anything into another person. Right. So. <laughs> Yes. So this, surprise, surprise. <laughs> yeah. So this just peaked out of my own my own curiosity. And if you don't know, that's totally fine. How do they pick which direction they're going to go when they predicting when they're predicting the next one? Yeah. So they're they're doing a lot of um, epidemiological data, right? So they're watching, they're tracking a couple different versions and watching how they're developing in other countries okay. um, that are in a different seasonal state. Than, for example, the United States and, and, you know, some of the more like the first world countries that are coming around to it. Um, they'll have a di- right because we're on a different seasonal cycle than other right. people. And so you can kind of watch like flu season is at a different place in different places around the world. Mm-hmm. And so they'll watch, okay, what's going on here? What's the infectivity of this strain versus that strain? You know, mm-hmm. what places is it starting to become a hot spot? And, um, and then there might, there might not be a dartboard involved. 
That's really the, you know, just throw something and see which one sticks. But they're, so they're tracking a lot of data and, and just basically modeling what's coming next. Mm, that makes sense. So I know we mentioned clinical trials. I don't know, Chris, you're currently writing a book about those, <laughs> about those clinical trials uh, to try and explain to uh, people who have no idea what, what it is or how simple it is uh, from what you've told me, how simple it is to, to actually sure. join one. Um, you want to kind of run down uh, how a clinical trial works and how if for whatever reason somebody listening has somebody, a relative or whatever that is considering it, um, how they would go about joining one. Sure. Yeah. Do you mind if I give a shameless plug? Go for it. That, that's what, that's what we're here for. Only if it's a shameful plug. Yeah. <laughs> so the book is called, um, so the book, the title of the book is what the heck is a clinical trial? And I'm writing it, you know, as, as somebody who's been both in the academic field and in industry cancer research. And when is I've it supposed to get released? September. Nice. September. Yeah, <laughs> um, be on the lookout for it this fall. What the heck is a clinical trial? All yeah. right, keep going. <laughs> so, so the idea is this, that, that um, there are a ton of oncology clinical trials. Especially, you know, the book focuses in the United States, but the United States only makes up something like 30% of the recruitment. Um, so, I mean, it's worldwide. So with the advent of sort of these immunotherapies and a variety of different um, kind of clinical applications to cancer therapy, there are just tons and tons of clinical trials. And the truth is nobody knows about them. That's really what it comes down to is that the public just doesn't know that they're out there, right? So I pulled up like some fun statistics here fun with a question mark. Um, so there's roughly seven, like 1.7 million new cancer diagnoses annually, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you look at the number of clinical trial spots, there's effectively about every year at this point, there's about one spot for every 10 patients. So mm -hmm. there's a ton of spots out there that people just don't know about. And so, you know, when there's a couple of surveys out there if anybody who's listening to this is looking for a really good site to get some information on this stuff the center for information and study of clinical tr clinical research participation so c-i-s-c-r-p is a nonprofit organization we that does will a lot put of that state. link in the description so no need yeah. to memorize that <laughs> <laughs> yeah check those guys out they do a lot of work with people who have already participated in clinical trials and so what they do is they just check with people who've taken them and do a bunch of survey research. So to give it people an idea, let me find this stat because it's kind of a crazy statistic here. So yeah, so in the United States, right? Let's see, there are, as of July, because I just updated this statistic, there are 14,000 McDonald's operating in the United States, which as it turns out, thank you internet, means that if you're in the continuous 48 states, you can never be more than 135 miles from a McDonald's. So <laughs> there are more ongoing recruiting clinical trials today than that. Now, when you only go to cancer, there's about 7,000, right? So there's basically one cancer clinical trial for every two McDonald's. Now, can anybody here not think of 10 McDonald's off the top of their head? They're oh, did we lose everywhere. Them? So that gives you an idea. 
Am I back? Yeah, you're back. This is my new sole unit of measurement. Everything's yeah. going to be compared to the national number of McDonald's. <laughs> so I, I actually did this. There's more cancer clinical trials than Taco Bells or Burger Kings. Oh. So but we stuck with McDonald's, you know, the fries. They really just get me. So, yeah, so they're, they're everywhere, right? And there's a ton of them. And the truth is, it is super easy to get onto one. It's basically an email. And you can be on a clinical trial. I mean, you'll get checked out for eligibility criteria. And there's a number of patients who end up not being eligible. Um, but for patients who have gone through their normal clinical course, about half of them, I think it was in this, in this like trial that they were reporting, 62% of patients said their clinicians never mentioned the words clinical trials or clinical research. Mm -hmm. Their doctor never talked about it. And uh, basically, it looks like when you sort of poll people, that's who people want to hear from. They want to hear from their doctor about a clinical trial or the research staff associated with one. But you're more likely to find it on TV or a newspaper than from your doctor. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, whole, there's a big gap in the knowledge of what these things are. And so really, I mean, my, my take-home point here is that they're kind of everywhere. And the guys over at the, the Center for Information and Study of Clinical Research Participation, they'll go so far as to search for you for a clinical trial and they'll send you a list for free. Um, and then all you have to do is send somebody an email. So it's really straightforward. And the, the idea of writing this book was, you know, I've had a couple of conversations with people who have had cancer, right? So it, it kind of comes with the territory. You work in a, in a science -y field, mm -hmm. somebody you know gets cancer, you get a phone call, at which point I'm sure you guys have all had to state, I'm not a medical doctor, mm -hmm. like multiple times. Um, but not, not that kind of doctor. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's very true, um, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but we're all associated with this medical clinical research complex. And so we all kind of know that these things are going on. Um, and so what I thought was, hey, I should just write all this stuff down um, mm -hmm. and give it to people. And, you know, I'm going to self-publish it on Amazon. It's going to be super cheap. It's going to be, you know, a couple bucks um, just so that people can kind of look at it. And all it does is it walks through all those statistics, all the kind of the fun statistics about McDonald's and, you know, how many clinical trials are out there. I think there's roughly, in every state in the United States, there's over 100 clinical trials for cancer right now, except for Wyoming, which I think has 97. So, I mean, they're everywhere, right? So as long as you're willing to drive within your own state, you've got a lot of options. Yeah. Um, and so really what I wanted to do is just walk people through, okay, here's what a clinical trial is. Here's what the different phases are, right? Because that's important too. Mm -hmm. um, what are you joining when you join a clinical trial? What does it mean if the clinical trial is blinded or masked? You know, what does it mean if there's a placebo group? Is there a placebo group? Is that really mm -hmm. a thing in cancer trials anymore? Yeah. You know, what's standard of care therapy? So there's a whole, I mean, it's basically just a glossary that I tried to make really easy to read. Um, easier than talking to me at least. And so it's really just a chance for patients who are going through this. You know, this is a super emotional time for people, right? You, you walk into your doctor's office. For most patients, this is what happens, right? You get cancer, which is already bad enough, right? I don't have to understate that. You go through the course of therapy, right? So there's a bunch of standard therapies. You go through all those. And then your cancer progresses after that. And your doctor goes, mm -hmm. uh, And so now you're just thrown into an arena that, I mean, now you can think about, you have other options on the table, right? You can think about hospice or you can think about trying these experimental therapies. But I, I mean, I, I personally would be unable to pick 
anything in anybody else's job. If you dropped me in anyone else's job and said, hey, make a decision for this company, that would be a terrible idea. <laughs> right? like, also, bet your life savings on it. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, that's just unfair. So the goal here is just to kind of give people a quick, you know, it's like 75 pages. It's a small book. It'll bring you up to speed on the different types of clinical trials, on the different readouts that people are using. So, mm-hmm. you know, what does overall response rate mean? What's mm-hmm. a complete response? What's a partial response? What's stable disease? These, all, these things all have specific definitions. And the, the last goal of it is to help people bridge the gap between two, so between two individuals who have different levels of expertise, right? So we've all run into this scenario. We kind of jokingly ran into it earlier where the three of us started talking about T cells and we could go in on proteins and we're talking about PD-1, right? We all have a background and a filter that we can apply because we've all looked at this stuff for 15 years combined between <laughs> us, right? We have a filter that we can use to, to assess each other's statements. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when a doctor says, I, so I use in the book, when your dentist says, you'll feel a little bit of pressure, right? Does that really mean you're going to feel a little bit of pressure? No, right? That means it's going to hurt. But we all know that because we've gone to the dentist a bunch of times. The people who are going into clinical trials have never, this is their first, you know, their first rodeo. And so when a doctor tells them, hey, I see, I've seen good results with this Mm -hmm. in some patients I've treated. What does that mean? Right? I mean, is this, a lot of doctors are older. Are they referencing the chemotherapy days where they're like, yeah, I mean, you know, 5% of patients responded and this new one, we're up to 10%. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that's good in comparison, but, but they have a filter that normal people don't have. And there's a lot of crossover of words that people are using, right? The, the response is moderate. What does moderate mean? What does mild mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the book kind of walks through all of those and says, look, this is the doctor filter that they're using on all these things. And so that's how you should filter it to your, to your everyday life and, and to learn what you're looking at. So that's why I wrote it. And the the real shortest take-home message for anybody who finds themselves in this scenario is check out those guys, the Center for Information, (laughs) and read the book. And yeah, and try to get into a phase Mm -hmm. three trial. The truth is it doesn't really matter what, if you're faced with a phase one, phase two, or phase three, it doesn't really matter what they're testing, Mm -hmm. take the phase three. Because statistically speaking, this is just from a risk management assessment 97% of things in phase one will end up failing versus 30% of things in phase three that will end up succeeding. Mm -hmm. So if you get the option, go with a phase three and then do a 60 second run through the phases, kind of what their basic criteria they're trying to assess is. Sure. So the, so phase one, that's the other thing I I want people to, to understand in the book, right? So when, when you're walking into a phase one clinical trial, so not all phase, not all clinical trials are created equal right? That's really the take home. Phase one clinical trials, you're just testing if this is going to kill anybody. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and whatever, you know, there's a variety of other side effects that it can have, but you're really just checking, is this going to hurt somebody when I put it in them? Um, and if it happens to work, that's it's like a bonus. But the goal is to check whether you're going to hurt anybody. Mm-hmm. And so you, you dose it accordingly, right? There's a lot of drugs that for most people in a phase one clinical trial, they'll end up taking the wrong dose. Mm-hmm of what will eventually become the correct. So assume a drug is going to work, right? Most people on the phase one clinical trial will end up taking the wrong dose. Either it'll be too high or too low mm-hmm. because the phase one is looking for the right dose. How much can we give until somebody starts to be hurt? Um, phase two, you start to mix safety and efficacy. So you're looking for 
things that happen more rare. So the more rare side effects will show up in a phase two. And you've generally picked a dose. So now you're looking for whether or not the drug works. And by phase three at the broadest level, you're checking whether the drug is better than an alternative. So most patients in this scenario would get radiation. Is my drug better than radiation? That's the question being asked in the phase three. Um, so that's the broad breakdown. So even from that general definition, if you get an option of a phase one, two, or three, it makes the most sense to go for the phase three. Definitely. Sounds good. So I want to switch gears just a little bit um, into graduate school, how to get there, uh, what to do once you're there, and <laughs> what the options are once, once you're out, specifically for, for in this sort of uh, biomedical immunotherapy sort of, uh, sort of field. Um, so Katie, do you wanna do you wanna kind of run through how you got to where where you are and what you're looking for 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 the future? Yeah, definitely. Um, so in terms of how I got to grad school, so I started doing. I went to a real small college, um, Washington Lee, and so we didn't actually have grad students there. Um, so, but I started doing research. Um, it was you know just undergrads and my advisor, um, but I enjoyed it. Uh, so, you know, I didn't want to jump straight to grad school because I didn't really know what it was going to be like. I hadn't been exposed to it really. So I spent a couple of years as a postdoc at the NIH, um, which is a great program for anyone who's interested, um, but like doesn't want to, you know, make the full jump. Um, basically, it's, you know, take a year or two. It's all mostly people who are planning to go to medical school or graduate school. You're working in a lab full time. Um, it's a little bit more independent than some other, you know, technician positions that sometimes people do before going to grad school. So I really enjoyed my time there. Um, the kind of, I was working in a cancer lab, so that's kind of what got me interested in cancer research. Um, specifically at genomics labs, that's kind of what I do a lot of now. So using um, DNA sequencing to, you know, profile cancer, like look at responses to immunotherapy. Um, so it's kind of a mix of uh, you know, computational analysis and then actually working, you know, physically at the bench pipetting things. Um, so I like both aspects of that. Um, I was a math minor in college. So I was always kind of interested in that side of things. Um, so I kind of do both now. Um, and so when I was looking for graduate schools, um, I was, you know, looking for somewhere where I could combine like, clinical research, um, you know, with kind of understanding the basic mechanism of how things are working. That's what I'm really interested in. Um, so that's why I like Stanford Lies. You know, we have the hospital here. We're running, you know, these clinical trials. You know, you can study patients that are currently in a clinical trial. You can you know, get samples from them. Um, so there's a lot of nice crosstalk with that. Um, and yeah, uh, I don't know if there's anything else you want me to talk about, but that's kind of my path. <laughs> no, no, that's good. So um, when you got in, when you got into to grad school and you figured out that Stanford was kind of the one that you wanted uh, to go to, how was the, that transition from, like, is it a lot more research or is it classes based? Like, I think yeah. that, like people don't have, at least I don't, or people that I talk to in undergrad don't really have the uh, conception of what grad school is, right? And I've talked to, to Jenna and to you, and you guys yeah. are like, all, I, all we do is research. And I was yeah. like, so it's not classes? And people yeah. are like, what? <laughs> yeah, it definitely depends on the discipline. You know, there are some disciplines that are more course heavy. Um, you know, if you're getting a master's in like engineering, you know, that's a lot of classes, right? Um, mm -hmm. For And I think also, you know, it's not medical school. It's not like three years and you're done. You know, you take these courses and you, you finish. Um, so I think that's another thing that people um, may not know if, you, if you're not, you know, kind of in this world. But so grad school, it's, you know, the average is like five and a half, I think, right now. Um, so it's kind of a variable amount of time. And yeah, really research heavy. So my first year, I took some classes, um, but was in lab mostly, most of the time. 
Um, so maybe like less than half time I was in class. Um, in my first year, a lot of um, like, you know, biology based programs are like this where you spend the first year um, doing rotations in different labs. So I spent, you know, about three months in three different labs, um, just kind of seeing if I like the research, you know, trying some new things out. You're looking for also like a mentor for um, your time in grad school. So that's another mm -hmm. thing you look for is, you know, is this someone I, I want to work with? Do I like their mentoring style? Are they really hands-on? Are they kind of hands-off? And, you know, I have time to explore things. Um, what kind of research does the lab do? Um, so that's kind of your year to like figure things out. And then after that, you know, you're in lab um, cranking away. So, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of fun. You're doing different things every day, um, which is what I like about it. Um, it's, you're always learning new things, but not through courses. It's very different than undergrad. Um, I think mm -hmm. that took me a little while to adjust. You know, I was very used to a lot, you know, the schedule of, you know, I, I have a class, I have an exam and then, you know, I'm done. I kind of know how that works. Um, graduate school is very different where there's the timelines are a lot longer. You're working towards, you know, publications, getting all your data together into kind of a, a narrative that you can um, put together. Um, but that's really different than, you know, writing an essay or taking a test. So, um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> are you teaching? Are you, you're teaching as well? In I've done a little bit of TAing. Yeah. So it depends on the program. Again, even here at Stanford, it's, uh, it varies. So whether it's a requirement or not, um, whether you need to teach it for funding reasons, um, I've TA'd a graduate school class. Um, so the one that I took my first year, I ended up TAing it. Um, that was a lot of fun. You can also TA for, you know, undergrad classes if you're really more interested in kind of going into the teaching thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I think maybe that's a good segue into kind of what you do after grad school, um, which I think maybe my family doesn't really understand <laughs> sometimes. Like, you know, they're like, they're like, oh, so, you know, when you're done, you're, what are you going to do? <laughs> like, so, um, so for, you know, most, if you want to kind of stay in research, um, kind of the typical path is uh, to do, go and do a postdoc after grad school. So you still will be working kind of in someone else's group, but maybe you're a little bit more independent. Maybe you have, you know, some undergraduates or you know, research technicians that are working with you. You kind of have a little team, mm -hmm. um, but it's like a stepping stone into being a full independent um, investigator running your own group. Um, so that's kind of the standard path if you stay in academics. And then um, you know, probably Chris can talk more about there's a lot of amazing opportunities in industry, particularly, you know, in um, you know, biology and cancer biology, immunotherapy. Um, so it's a great space. Um, so that's kind of a different path. And you can transition, you know, after you're kind of finished with grad school, you can transition at different points. Um, cool. That makes sense. I think Tom will go next with you since you and Katie are in like a probably a similar situation. And then, and then we'll jump to you afterwards, Chris. Yeah, definitely. So I, I agree with everything she, that Katie said. She's, she's spot on for a similar experience for me. So my, I guess to start my story is I went to JMU, graduated in 2013, uh, absolutely convinced I was going to do med school, you know, through and through, did the pre-med thing, did not go to med school right away, uh, decided to go work in a research lab with a guy named Chuck Drake, uh, with Chris, who was doing his PhD at the time was convinced I was going to be there for two years as a lab manager. We'll get some experience, get a couple of papers out, study up, take the MCAT, you know, apply to school and, and move on with my life. Uh, it was four years. Uh, I took the MCAT, did actually fairly well, to be honest, decided that I liked research more, took the GRE, uh, applied to, to graduate school, was accepted and started my track. So at this point, I'm, I'm sort of thinking I should just take the LSAT and knock it out. Uh, you know, just really get the, the trisecta going there. Uh, but but I found uh, passion in that lab. I thought it was really cool. I mean, you're on the cutting edge of things. You you, you are the cutting edge, you know. Mm -hmm. So I applied to you know a bunch of different programs, like everybody does. I guess to for those people who are listening, the experience typically, at least when I was going in, is take the GRE, apply to the different schools, 
there's no secondary process. They'll either invite you for an interview or they won't. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually when you go out, you fly out to wherever your place is or drive if you're close. Uh, they'll kind of wine and dine you and send you through a couple interviews over a two or three day experience where you arrive, you know, one evening, they'll take you through the, you know, kind of the showy part, show you all the different toys they have, all the different labs mm-hmm. they have. They'll have you do mm-hmm. the interview with the faculty. And then that night you'll do some sort of social, you know, fun thing and then you'll go home and then you'll do this a couple of times until hopefully you get an offer and you like it and you take it Um, so once you're in school i think it does vary depending on the program so this is what i would tell everyone is is pay attention to the different programs and kind of Mm -hmm. how they run there's a lot of similarities but some details differ Uh, for my program we are course heavy the first year they knock out all of our core classes in the first 12 months Mm -hmm. Uh, and you take your board oral examination which is kind of your cumulative are you ready to, to be a full-blown candidate test just a, a month into your second year? And during that first year, we also did the same rotations. We did three 12-week apiece rotations where you get to experience the different labs, the different PIs. Uh, there are some things you should look for, right? Do you mm-hmm. fit? Do you like it? Do you enjoy your experience? Can you get along with your PI? And I mean that both from a professional and a personal note. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are probably going to be points where you disagree with that person. So you need to be able to have an adult conversation and not let it get out of control. So it's got to be someone that you can work with. Uh, there are some technical things you should ask them too. Funding is a big deal. If you don't have money, you don't do work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so you want to talk to somebody who's got the resources to do the project you want to do. Um, but you'll have those conversations. They'll teach you what to do. Uh, and then once you pass your boards and you pick a lab, it's it's research time. You get your project and you get going. Mm. Um, so what's, uh, are you kind of in the academia boat moving forward or the industry boat? Or you don't know yet? I'm undecided. I, uh, I think I'll consider academia, but I think I'm probably just going to lean towards the industry route. I, uh, I did four years as a, a, you know, a technician and then I'm doing another five, five and a half as a student. I love academic, but at a certain point in time, I'd like to have a, a nine to five job too, or some version yeah. of that, which I guess Chris can validate whether or not that's a, an accurate statement or just a wish. <laughs> it's a <laughs> lifestyle good. choice. Well, let's get to you, Chris. What's your kind of pathway and how did you end up where you are? Sure. So I, um, so as Tom mentioned, I was doing my, my PhD uh, at Hopkins. Mm-hmm. I finished up there and ended up coming up to the Brigham um, to do my postdoc there. And so that my theory there for what it was worth at the time was that I did a lot of T-cell stuff at Hopkins. So I decided to come up and do a dendritic cell postdoc um, in the Brigham, which was useful. Uh, and then from there, I actually, so I, I joke, I basically took a two-year vacation from Chuck. And then after two years in um, in this postdoc, I called Chuck again and said, hey, I'm considering research labs. Do you guys, do you know anybody? And he said, Oh, I've got these guys. They're called Potenza. They work up in Cambridge. You should talk to them. And so then I talked to them um, and followed up and went, went the industry route. Um, and then um, I've just stuck with those guys ever since. So we're going on five or six years, something like that. Um, and Chuck has been on the scientific advisory board. So I just followed Chuck around. That's my, my career advice for everybody <laughs> is to follow Chuck Drake. Wherever he goes. <laughs> there's a decent chance he won't know your name he just says hey dude and hey man and hey buddy to everybody (laughs) but just follow chuck drake around yeah yeah Um, but i think one oh sorry um go ahead yeah i was gonna say one thing that i think is really cool i mean even if you're in academics or you're in industry is there's tons of crosstalk between both of them right so like there's been companies that have come out of my my boss's lab um Mm -hmm. you know and we interact with them like being in the bay you know there's 
it's there's a ton of it everywhere. Um, but it's really exciting, you know, on both sides, right? So the companies are, you know, trying to turn, you know, research findings into, you know, products um, or, you know, develop them into clinical, you know, therapies. Um, but there's, it, kind of, it goes both ways. And so I think it's a really cool time to be part of it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, and I, I would definitely second that. Yeah, and I think one thing to note here is that we don't have anybody representative, but there's a whole third career path, which is policy and, mm. and regulatory things. Mm. None of us are doing that at the moment, but there is a whole wing of yeah. things people who after graduating can then go on and do yeah. uh, stuff in that arena as well. Cool. So, Katie, you kind of beat me to the punch about crosstalk. What is what has your guys' experience been? Let me start with you, Katie, but what's your guys' experience been kind of crossing crossing between, so for you guys in academia, what's your experience been dealing with industry? And Chris, once now you're in industry, what's been your experience going back to, to the academic side of, of things? So Katie, mm -hmm. we can start with you. Yeah, I mean, I think, so I guess some of my interactions that I've had with different companies. So, um, you know, they're there are a lot of companies that have similar research goals, right, to some of the research labs, right? So there's a lot of, you know, immunotherapy companies, they're trying, they're asking the same questions that we are in the lab, right? So I think, you know, there's opportunities there. Like I just met, there's a company, Arsenal Biosciences, and so they are kind of a, a newer one, but they're kind of asking these same questions, right? Like, how are T cells, you know, why do some people respond? Why do some not? What, how does the biology of T cells relate to these questions of response, right? So, um, you know, they'll work with research labs, you know, it's kind of a different way to get funding or maybe access to more samples or something like that. So um, that's been one way that I've seen it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's cool to, that you can have kind of both, be part of both things. Mm -hmm. Tom? Yeah, so we've, uh, I've worked with a couple of, of companies over the years, you know, we, we get grants with them, they give us some resources and funding and ideas. And uh, it's a great asset. If you, if you find the right combination, the right team, mm -hmm. uh, I can't get into too many details for one of them, but the, the idea, right, is that we have um, that joint partnership. So for one of them, they gave us a, a target that they were very interested in, mm -hmm. and we've been able to use that and the funding to really explore uh, macrophages and really get into some nitty gritty details, which are pretty cool. And additionally, you know, industry moves fast. So if you ask mm -hmm. them for something and you say, hey, we need this thing, you know, we, we're pretty sure that it'll help us answer the question. It'll probably be there on Monday, you know, yeah. Yeah. they're going to figure it out. They're going to slap it in a box and they're going to ship it to you. Mm -hmm. uh, so it can be helpful to have those, those partnerships, those people who say, we're super invested in this. We think it's cool. We want this answer. We're going to give you whatever you need to get it. Mm -hmm. uh, and not to say in academia that doesn't happen, but I think more often than not, sometimes you send an email and it's three weeks before you really set up the meeting to, to talk about something and it will happen, you know, there's no big deal, but you know, sometimes you get something a little more overnight when you're working with a, a yeah. company who's got such a fast vested interest in whatever the, the particular project is. So having a partner like that can be really cool when you're trying to quickly advance a project. Yeah. Uh, and they offer a lot of great expertise. You know, they're also, they're experts. There's a reason mm -hmm. they're in right. this biotech, you know? Yeah. yeah, definitely. So Chris, from, from the other side of the coin, what's your experience has been like? Yeah. So we, um, I, it's interesting. So I imagine it's, it's just kind of reverse from what these guys were. It's the other side of the same coin, right? Yeah. So um, one thing I'll say that's always interesting is to have conversations with academic partners because the guys over in, in the academic realm have a lot more sort of freedom and interest in kind of a variety of realms. And so it's not unlikely that we'll sort of ask for one thing and get another thing. <laughs> um, be like, no, what I really need to know is this very specific number. <laughs> like, this is really cool. Here's this other experiment I did. 
Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I mean, to be fair, you know, they, these are two halves of the coin and, the, and both of them are necessary, right? <laughs> Industry is looking for things that are one step away from implementation, right? Like my mm -hmm. job is to take things that are from, from an idea that we can conceive of a drug and make it a drug and get it through the FDA. Yeah. Um, but we really don't like to go fishing, right? So <laughs> if, if somebody's like, hey, let's start to think about new targets. I mean, that's a great way for, for like any, to get any of my senior management to like call me in and be like, stop saying that. Don't tell that to anybody. <laughs> like, just, like, we don't go fishing. We're not, we're not interested in new targets. You know, and so we, and so like, as these guys mentioned, we end up, what we do is we'll do these partnerships, right? And so we'll, we'll let the academic labs go looking for targets and then we will look at their developability. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we'll do is we'll, we'll either have, what we, what typically happens at least, I, I can comment on my company, which is, um, is jokingly my one and a half company of, you know, my, not really my second experience, but really my one and a half experience. Yeah. Um, where what we'll do is we'll lean pretty heavily on our scientific advisory board. Um, and there, there are a bunch of academic scientists and they'll, we'll have licensing agreements with them to do some academic stuff for us and then vice versa, right? They'll have, they'll come up with ideas and we'll test them in our essays. And, and, um, and you guys could comment on this too. I, at least what I found personally is that when I'm in the industry realm, I'm focused like 95% of the time on human samples. Like mm. we do very, very limited mouse work and very, mm -hmm. very limited animal work. Um, and so that gives us a certitude, right? Where we're very good at dealing with human blood and doing different mm -hmm. experiments in human blood and with human tissue samples. Um, but we're pretty much hamstrung when it comes to doing anything other than putting a tumor into a mouse and injecting it with a drug, right? Mm -hmm. We don't have the, the same capabilities that those guys have. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, that's yeah. kind of, oh, go ahead, Katie. Oh, I was just gonna, yeah, just to like emphasize that. Yeah, I think like, you know, companies, they're really focused on one thing and then academic labs, you know, you're also surrounded by, you know, other academic labs who have different expertise, right? So even if I can't do a certain type of experiment, like there's probably a lab like down the hall, right? That can, that can help me. Um, so I think, yeah, it's just like different ways of doing things. Yeah. The academic side is a lot more exploratory. You're kind of exploring mm -hmm. new ideas. Um, and then when you really like in a company, you're just trying to push it through, yeah. but definitely complement each other a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely two sides of a coin. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. I guess. Two more, two more questions for all you guys. But Chris, you mentioned the, the policy stuff. Um, mm -hmm. So, have you guys dealt with any sort of policymakers or kind of dabbled in in that with your company, or not so much? So, so, so I can comment at least on the Potenza stuff, right? Okay. So, the company that I was a part of before Werewolf um, was Potenza, and what we did was we took three drugs from um, from development all the way into phase one clinical trials. And so all of them were, what, what happens is when you want to put a drug into a person, there's an interesting quirk here, which is you need to get FDA approval. But what you right. need to get is you need to get what's called investigational new drug approval. And the main, one of the main reasons you have to do that is that you can't ship a drug across state lines unless it has investigational new drug approval. Mm -hmm. So what you end up doing is generating a big data packet to then submit to the FDA. And then the FDA will come back to you and say, hey, we've got some questions about your stuff. You know, can you answer these questions? So you'll do kind of a little bit of a back and forth with the FDA, and then they'll either thumbs up or thumbs down um, what you're gonna do. And um, so the stuff that goes into the packet has kind of a variety of, of angles. Um, it has, so typically we're showing efficacy data. So look, we can, we can make it work with human samples. The drug works, it does what it's supposed to do. 
um, will generate some tox models, some uh, toxicology models, which is something we can talk about a little bit. Um, so we'll show that the drug is not toxic in a couple different animal species, or is at least acceptably toxic. Um, and then we will, um, and then we'll submit all that information to the FDA and just see if, if they like it or not. Um, and then, uh, and then, yeah. So then, if you get your investigational new drug status, then what you have to do is then you have to recruit a bunch of investigators who will, you know, who are doctors in hospitals who will start to recruit patients to your clinical trial, and, and then off to the races you go. Mm. Um, our interactions with the FDA. Bye, kiddo. <laughs> there you go. See. <laughs> um, so our interactions with the FDA have been pretty smooth, uh, but it is interesting that the the FDA love you too. Bye. <laughs> um, so, the, so the FDA has actually spawned a there is a, there is a uh, a whole field between research groups and the FDA. So there are people who specialize in getting your data from the science side to an acceptable pattern of the FDA. So we hire, so we will talk to a bunch of consultants. Mm -hmm. Be like, hey, what do you think the FDA is going to think about this? Um, mm -hmm. And so we, we do a lot to try and kind of smooth the process on the, the investigation side, um, for better or for worse. And then one of the things, Eric, you and I had talked about at one point, mm -hmm. and I'd be interested to hear Katie and Tom's opinion, mm -hmm. is um, a lot of what we submit to the FDA is, is safety analysis in mm -hmm. monkeys or in rats. Um, and truth be told, I think that stuff's kind of worthless. Um, it doesn't have a lot of application. Um, but, you know, I, I sort of get where people are coming from. Like, it makes sense that you would want not to hurt anybody. That makes sense to me. Um, but I don't know that there's a lot. They're different species. And so you end up in a weird spot, right? The one I, when Eric and I were talking, I mentioned, you know, if you were to run a clinical trial in chocolate and you chose dogs as your tox species, you would confirm and conclude that chocolate is toxic for people and not give it to anybody. Yeah. Um, and so I'm not sure of a, of a good way around it. I mean, what I, what I'm proposing is sounds kind of cruel and I'll, I'll own that up front. Um, but I'm not sure how safe monkey trials make things or, or rat trials make things. Um, but we do spend a lot of time putting that data together. So, it, I mean, it goes into the packet for what that's worth. And obviously I am not in a position to change the effort. <laughs> how it's working at the moment. Um, but I'd be curious to hear what you guys think about those things. Yeah. I mean, it's hard because it's hard to imagine what like the alternative is, right? You have to check something before you put it in people. But I think kind of going off of that, another thing that I'm seeing a lot more of, and I think is, is great is that, you know, traditionally, like a lot of preclinical work has been done, like in mouse models or cell lines, right? And you kind of try to work out all the kinks and figure out what, you know, what's going to go wrong? Is this drug working how I think it's going to? And then you go into people and people are so different than mice, right? And like, even patients will vary so much. And so then you kind of haven't answered the questions that you need to. So I think there's a lot more research going on now that's being done directly in people, right? So we can, you know, collect samples from all these trials that are going on and really understand, you know, when do things work? Why do they work? Why don't, why don't they work? So even if you have, you know, you get to phase three and the drug fails, hopefully you learn something from it. Um, so I think there's a lot more of that going on now, which I think is, is great. Um, yeah, Tom, yeah. Tom, you want to jump in? Sure. Yeah. No, so I think you guys hit the nail on the head, right? The question comes down to the usefulness of models, right? And how useful certain models are versus others. Right, so take, for instance, we do a ton of mouse tumors, right? You take a tumor, you put it in the flank of a mouse, it grows, you treat it, it either shrinks, doesn't shrink, or grows, right? And yep. you, you make some inferences there saying, 
I have two groups. I injected tumors into 10 mice. Five of them I did nothing to. Five of them I gave my drug. The five I gave my drug have a, a less tumor or the tumor regressed. Therefore, my drug is good. Right? Mm -hmm. That is the, the assumption that we would take away from that. The reality of the fact is we stuck a tumor in a mouse. And then within somewhere between three and six weeks, it was, you know, somewhere around 20% of the mouse's body weight. <laughs> That's not yeah. how tumors work. Yeah, yeah. Right. I don't have a, a 35 pound kidney tumor in me that wasn't there three weeks ago, but is yeah. now. Right. And it's not to say the, the model is useless. It's not. It has therapeutic value, but it, it does come down to say you need to understand the limitations of each yeah. model. And it doesn't mean you can't use them, but you need to know that they are not perfect. You want to know the best model for people? People. Right? Yeah. yeah. But until we're allowed to test random drugs on people, we got to do something, right? So you just got to know in your head that when you put this drug into a, a monkey or something and you say, didn't poison a monkey, that's the takeaway. The takeaway is you didn't poison a monkey. It's not you won't poison people. It's you yeah. did not poison a monkey, right? Or we gave chocolate to a dog and a dog died. The answer is not chocolate kills people. The answer is chocolate killed that dog take that data for what it is and extrapolate safely, but know that there are limits. Know that you should probably try it in other models. You should try it in different places, right? So it right. comes down to the usefulness of models and they are useful, but they are yeah. also, right? Yeah. So you just gotta, you just gotta have that in your head at all times when you're reviewing data, mm -hmm. right? We, we, we get into a bad habit. I think a lot of people I've talked to of, we interpret data and we extrapolate as we interpret, right? We'll do an experiment. What I mean by that is we'll take a tumor and I will look by flow cytometry for regulatory T cells. We talked about them earlier. They tend to be masked in tumors. Mm -hmm. And I will say, I treated uh, you know, two groups with a drug in one group where I didn't treat them. There are more Tregs in the other group. There are fewer Tregs. Therefore, my drug makes the tumor microenvironment less you know, suppressive. It's better. Mm -hmm. Really, what I learned was there are fewer Tregs. That is the literal takeaway. I have yeah. now extrapolated and added interpretation that that tumor is now different, right? Mm -hmm. But it's a very, we do this naturally, but it's always good just to come back to our roots and say, what is the data literally telling me? You know, yeah. word for word, what do I see? And now let's extrapolate. Sometimes we can get into a, a little bit of this habit of immediately extrapolating without taking that step back and saying, what is literally happening here? We literally didn't poison a, a monkey. Okay, yeah. now let's talk about humans. Maybe right. because they are so similar, we are not. We are less likely to poison a human. Not impossible, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and I think another thing we kind of talked a little bit about earlier is you know, kind of, you know, you ha like all of us reading these things, right? Have kind of uh, the lenses that we view it through. Like we've, you know, right. maybe tried to interpret similar things, or we kind of have a context for it. But I think a lot of times, you know, when you have like articles that get talked about in the press, right? It, um, they kind of just take the the big point, right? And they don't talk about all these like considerations that you have you have to. And so that's one thing that I, sometimes irks me, like is you know, because then you'll go and read the paper and you're like, wait, did they really say this? Or they showed it in a mouse, right? So that's not the same thing. Like we've cured mm -hmm. cancer in mice, you know, millions of times. So it's right. So I think you know that's something that you know if you when you see these things in the news, it's just something I think to keep in mind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great point, right? Because you can have cancer in a dish and say, my drug kills cancer in a dish. You know what else kills cancer in a dish? Bleach. Yep. <laughs> really, really well. I'm not putting bleach in people. No. You got to know right. the limits. Now they tell you well, not that's to drink interesting. it. <laughs> yeah. But the, um, what, and it's an interesting thing too. I mean, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but I've noticed it's very concerning to me, the number of 
sort of popular media articles I find that don't have a link to the paper. Yeah. Like, not a <laughs> clickable link to the primary source, mm-hmm. right? This is a huge mistake. How do you yeah. like, it's like writing a book report without referencing the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then you end up in these weird circles, right? Like as, as Jenna and Tom both noted of, of people making these extrapolations um, and they don't have the correct filter and they can't even go back and check, right? We have like, the only way yeah. I find them is usually by finding the author and then sort of the publication date. And then I sort of hunt yeah. down the paper. Yeah, I will say, I don't know what to do about it though, right? Because for, let's say for our skill set, right? The three of us could go back and look at the primary paper for a cancer immunotherapy and say, nah, this is gibberish, right? They, they, they mm-hmm. wildly overestimated the data. A lot of the, the general public doesn't have, as you said, the filter and the experience and the classes and the, the time that we have. So, right, mm-hmm. to- you know, change the model here and say, this is akin to someone handing me a, a book on physics and being like, this is what they said. And I'll read it and say, I don't know what they said. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, like these papers are dense. They're technical. Yeah. Like, they yeah. use terms that we understand because we've been there, but even just jump a field. I was, um, I was looking at a radiation oncology paper a while back and they used treatment induced lymphopenia tilt. <laughs> <laughs> which for, for our <laughs> listeners, you should understand that in our field, TIL stands for tumor infiltrating lymphocyte, a wildly different thing. So I was reading this paper and in my head, I was using the, the acronym tumor infiltrating lymphocytes in a paper where they were talking about radiation killing lymph. It, had, it was completely confusing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why wouldn't it be? It's just a different field. They can do whatever they want with their nomenclature. Yeah. Well, that too, but right. plus you guys have the know-how to actually go find the papers. Like people who don't know... Right. Like, I don't know if I could go find a paper, this, that specific paper based on just author and date. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I could with some digging, but I would probably have to ask one of you, like, hey, is this the right one? Because I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. And so that, mm-hmm. I feel like, is, is, another, is another problem as yeah. well. Yeah. And, and there's a whole... Yeah, there's a whole other issue of open access. So, yeah, so a lot of right. a lot of articles. Like, I'll I'll try to send a link for something I've published, like to my parents, and they can't they can't they don't have access to it, right? Because all the journals have paywalls. You have to subscribe. The universities, you know, have these giant subscriptions to journals, mm-hmm. um, so that we have access to all of this. But yeah, a lot of it isn't publicly available. But I think you know, there's a big movement right now in science to make things mm-hmm. more accessible, especially because a lot of it is publicly funded, right? It's funded by the governments. Um, mm-hmm. And so you, you want to make these things accessible to the public once they're done. So, um, you know, there's things like preprint servers. So um, like BioArchive is one of them where people can post their papers um, and they're posted by the author, not by a journal. Um, you know, the one problem there is they're not peer reviewed. So they haven't kind of gone through this vetting process. So you have to, you have to be even more careful when you're reading these things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think maybe moving, you know, some of this, you know, conversation online and you know there's a whole field of science communication right and i think it's super important like communicating what we're doing in the lab to to people who you know their tax money is going to fund it so mm-hmm. so things like this are great too yeah is, yeah. There, is there some sort of movement and this is just me asking because i have no idea but is there some is there any sort of push for you guys to start writing papers in a way that i'll say normal people can understand like like I said earlier, Chris, like I read your abstract for your own paper and the same with you, Katie. I was like, I don't know what I'm reading at all. <laughs> Has there been any push? Like, have you guys ever experienced that? Say, hey, maybe push this towards like normal people or like, Chris, I know you're doing that with your book, but that's not that's not been pushed on you by a university or something. That's you're doing that on, on your own accord. Have yeah, you I. But 
so I don't know if you, I mean, it'd be interesting to see what you guys think too. I don't know that there's a broad push for it. There are definitely kind of individual spotlights. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, one that I would plug if anybody's interested in learning about this stuff is the, um, what's their full acronym? It's ACIR. American. Yeah, they're good. Yeah. They're good. Yeah. yeah. They have nice like graphics too. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So it's Accelerating Cancer Immunotherapy Research, ACIR.org. And they'll basically just send you a weekly like email that has some graphics, like Katie said, mm-hmm. um, that kind of just explain, you know, a couple papers were published. Here is what they found. Um, and they do a good job of translating. So I really like their stuff. So yep. free plug yeah. to those guys. Sounds yeah. good. Um, we'll, we'll put that link in the description uh, as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, go ahead. I think I was to say, yeah, I think, um, you know, to some extent, like you have to have the the jargony like full version right because sure, sure. like that's how we communicate with each other right you need all the details there but i think one other place uh so the scientific community is actually very active on like twitter so a lot mm-hmm. of and i've seen a lot of people now they'll kind of you know they'll post their paper but then they'll kind of do like a mini like these are the, the highlights right these are the points of the big things that we saw that were interesting so um you know it's so that's one way that people are trying to you know have conversations that are kind of out in the public um yeah mm-hmm. Good yeah. Tom, do you have I, anything to add? Yeah, I think they covered it. I mean, I think that I would love to see that push. I don't mm-hmm. know where the, the money, the time, and the expertise would come from, right? You'd essentially have to recruit a bunch of people whose sole job it is to read and vet papers, which mm-hmm. is not a bad idea, but at yeah. the end of the day is a little challenging. Sure. Uh, but I, I think it's a great idea. It just It gets challenging because we will talk, much like any field, right? This isn't specific to us, but you know, within our field as an example, the language you use is specific for a reason, mm-hmm. right? So it's sometimes it's hard to eloquently distill those reasons down uh, without just having massive paragraphs of gibberish. And, you know, yeah, definitely. Controls in any experiment. The idea is that you want to know what your boundaries look right, look like, right? So you mm-hmm. want to be able to say, if I don't treat, here's what it looks like. If I do treat, here's what it looks like. But if I only do the treatment by itself, I, I don't have any reference point, right? So everything has to have these controls and sometimes the controls are, are wildly specific and it can be challenging to distill that. Uh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, I definitely... I'm, I'm not qualified to read papers well outside my field. I'll stick with immunology and cancer, but yeah. you want to talk about, you know, <laughs> anything else, I just can't help you. you yeah, know? <laughs> no, I definitely understand why why the papers are written the way they are. So like, you guys need to feed off each other for for more data and to kind of bounce ideas off each other throughout the scientific community. Uh, I was just wondering generally if, if you guys had experienced that, I guess. Yeah, so, I wish. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll wrap <laughs> up with uh, what's next for you guys in, in the future, future career goals, uh, plans, future cool projects that you guys are working on, if you, if you can say anything, Chris. <laughs> um, but Katie, We're we can start with, yeah. <laughs> Katie, we can start with you. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, as I said, I'm starting my fifth year um, here. So hoping to wrap up uh, this year and then I'm planning to transition to postdoc after this. Um, so still kind of in exploring and seeing if people have room. It's kind of a weird time to be transitioning places, but um, we'll see how it goes. So um, yeah, things I'm working on. So another thing we didn't really get, it was great. We spent a lot of time talking about um, immunotherapy. Um, another thing I'm working on, which is cool. And maybe we, I can, uh, follow up with some links or something is um, looking at kind of different ways that certain genes that are important for cancer cells get amplified. So one thing that we're looking at is, so, you know, all of our DNA is packaged into chromosomes and normal cells. And so I'm doing a project looking at um, uh, genes in cancer that are not on chromosomes. So they're extra chromosomal, these circular pieces of DNA that cancer cells have. So it's 
kind of wild. They've been known about that for a long time, but are kind of recently gaining more attention. So it's been, it's been fun. Um, yeah. That's awesome. Tom? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a year behind Katie. So I'm, uh, I've got a little more time to figure out what, what my life's going to look like afterwards. But um, our lab, as we kind of pitched earlier, we're, we're more in the innate side of things, working on macrophages. And in prostate cancer, it's been shown that you can do what's called a, a vaccine, a cancer vaccine, and you can get immune infiltrate and you can get some extended survival, uh, but it's not particularly good. So then people tried the checkpoint receptors, they tried the anti-PD-1, anti-CTLA-4, et cetera, and it doesn't work. Um, so what we've seen is these tumors are, are massively infiltrated by what we call M2 macrophages, and these are considered alternatively activated macrophages. They typically play a role in wound healing. And as you might imagine, in wound healing, you're trying to shut down an immune reaction. You're trying to cause no more damage and start to rebuild mm -hmm. the tissue. Uh, mm -hmm. But if you put these M2 macrophages into a tumor, which you can actually sort of consider an active wound, uh, dampens the immune response and you don't get tumor clearance. Mm -hmm. So I'm working on a, a project targeting a molecule that's highly expressed in these M2 macrophages called PI3K gamma, uh, which a couple of other groups have shown signaling through this molecule kind of drives the immunosuppressive phenotype, this M2 phenotype. And if you can interfere with that, you can drive them towards more of an M1 pro-inflammatory anti-tumor phenotype. So we think that because prostate cancer is pretty well infiltrated with these M2 macrophages, which suppress an immune response, that targeting those is a pretty good idea, at least worth trying. And then maybe once we have some success there, coupling that with one of the other mechanisms like anti-CTLA-4 or anti-PD-1 might yield some better results. So that's sort of what our lab works on um yeah hopefully hopefully you guys see something in the, the relative near future i hope so It'd be fun yeah. to publish and then look for graduation in you know 18 months or so yeah sounds good uh chris so um so i can at least point everybody to our website werewolftx.com but so what what we're going for is we're going for a unique approach to uh cancer um, therapies where we're using what we call our predator technology to conditionally activate molecules um, in the appropriate environment. So we're trying to make some kind of cutting edge next generation um, immune modulating agents that we're gonna, we're hopefully taking into the clinic pretty soon. So we, we have a really nice clean pipeline that we're working through. Um, we actually have some openings. So for both of you guys, um, and then if anybody else is listening, you know, we, we'd love to have some more people. We're a very small company of, of maybe 20 people total, um, but we, we've done some cool things in the past, and I think we're going to do some cool things in the future. Awesome. And your book is out this fall? Called, yes, this fall. Called, uh, what the heck is a clinical trial? What the heck is a clinical trial? Sounds good. Everybody be <laughs> on the lookout for that. We, did a, we just did an hour and 45 minutes, guys. So Nice. nice. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was great having you all on, and we'll probably, I'm sure we'll get some of you back on at some point. Um, but yeah. Bye, everybody. Yep. Thanks Bye. for having me. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye.